Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Right now on to today's podcast conversation. I'm really, really excited about my guest today. This is somebody who my publisher, Penguin, actually put me in touch with uh, a few months ago when I saw an advanced copy of her book, and it really grabbed me from the moment that I saw it. This is a lady who has pretty well qualified, if I'm honest. She is a neuroscientist. She is professor of neuroscience and neurology. She's got a dual PhD. She is a certified integrative nutritionist and... She is Associate Director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at the Weill School at Cornell Medical College. It's Dr. Lisa Mosconi. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Thank you so much for having me. Lisa, it's a real honor for me to be speaking to you today. I think in the health sphere that we live in now, where lots of people have got an opinion and are voicing an opinion, I think what you offer is real scientific rigor. You have been studying the brain. You've been studying nutrition for a long time now. And I think that's one of the reasons why I resonate so much with your work is because it's based upon real robust science. Thank you. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm a scientist. I, I'm a neuroscientist by training. And like you said, I, I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is really called or brain imaging. So most of my research is based on methodologies that allow us to visualize the brain, every possible aspect of the brain, the brain, the way the way the brain is aging, the way the brain is active or not active. And recently we've been able to visualize changes in chemistry inside the brain, which I think is fascinating. And um I've been working in the field of brain aging and Alzheimer's for uh, 15 years at this point. Wow. And now, finally, yeah, it's a, it's a long time. Uh, but what's really fascinating is that we can, we can see the onset of Alzheimer's in the brain when people are still very young, like in their 40s and 50s. And we can visualize how amyloid plaques start to accumulate and then slowly progress over time. So this is really fascinating for us. So, so, this, so this is years before actually people are getting the diagnosis. You're seeing, you know, clues. Well, more than clues, actually. You're seeing evidence that that disease process has started. Yes, like 20 years prior. We, we can spot um, onset and emergence of Alzheimer's pathology when people are in their 40s and 50s. And the, the typical age of onset for the symptoms of Alzheimer's is more in the 70s. So there's like a 20 years gap in between changes in the brain and the onset of cognitive impairment and memory loss and dementia. And that's because, you know, the brain is a fighter. The human brain is incredible. It can really stand a lot of damage before showing any, any behavioral issues. But there's something that happens inside the brain that is slow and protracted and that we are now able to track over time. And what our research has shown in particular, which is why I wrote the book, is that lifestyle and diet in particular really influence our likelihood of aging gracefully or developing cognitive impairment and dementia as we get older. And it's really key to look at these changes when people are young. Yeah, Lisa, Lisa that's, uh, I mean, it's it's you know, interesting to hear that because I guess some people will be hearing that and getting worried at first saying, oh, wow, do I do I have this already going on in my brain? Uh, But the flip side is the fact that you can see it this early and the fact that you've got research showing how lifestyle can influence that, you know, the flip side is actually we can do something about it. And there's plenty that we can do throughout our lives to prevent 
the likelihood of us getting a brain problem or something like Alzheimer's disease when we are older, which is something that I think is on many people's minds these days. Before we delve deep there, though, um, Lisa, I just wonder, could you share, you know, did when, when you started studying, when you became a neuroscientist, did you think that you'd become an expert on foods? I mean, how, how did that come together? You know, did, is, is that, yeah, is there a story there potentially? Yes, I did not. No, not, not in a million years. I am, so my background is, is biology, is neuroscience, is pretty hardcore uh, chemistry, photochemistry and genetics. You know, and, and nutrition was not a part of my curriculum when I went to school. Actually, most scientists and most physicians, I think, just don't study nutrition in school. And so I, I was in Italy. I'm Italian, as I'm sure it's clear from, from my accent. <laughs> I'm from Florence in Italy, you know, born and raised. And I, I was doing my PhD there. And I moved to New York to complete my PhD. I moved to NYU. And I was working on, on the early detection and prevention of Alzheimer's. And when I first moved, so about... 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, everybody was asking about genetics. All my patients were like, well, you know, my mom has Alzheimer's or my dad has Alzheimer's. Am I going to get Alzheimer's? Is there some genetic marker that will make me get Alzheimer's? And little by little, my research was showing that genetics, the genes didn't really matter as much as I thought. And that was very disappointing for me in a way. And at the same time, my patients started asking questions about food. You know, the kind of questions really changed. It was more like, okay, I understand that my mom has Alzheimer's, my dad has Alzheimer's. I'm at risk for Alzheimer's just because I have a family history, although that doesn't mean I'm going to get Alzheimer's myself. So what should I eat? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. But you should have no idea what you should eat. And so I went back to school, of course, right? Well, so much time to kill. So I went, I went back to school. <laughs> yeah. and I completed another degree in nutrition. But mostly I realized that brain nutrition is really the same as brain chemistry. What I did not appreciate in school is that all these things that we learn about the brain, like glucose does this and that, magnesium does this and that, Vitamin B6 is mixed with choline to produce acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter, da-da-da-da. That's food. Those are nutrients. We just don't think about it as food. We think about it. When did the penny drop there for you? Were you just in a nutrition lecture doing your thing, thinking, yeah, I've done my neuroscience training. I'm learning about food now. You know, What was that moment where you were, you suddenly connected the dots and thought, wait a minute, this is food? This is food. I think, oh, for me, it was when I was looking at acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a, is a neurotransmitter. So it's, um, it's a chemical that we have in the brain that the brain produces to make memories. It's one of the neurotransmitters that we need to literally form memories inside the brain. And it's very well studied. And it just, I just thought, oh, wait a minute. Uh, choline, so acetylcholine is basically a sugar plus a B vitamin. And I never thought, I never questioned, like, where does the B vitamin come from? <laughs> it just never occurred to me to think about it that way. And, and then I thought, oh, wait, that's, that's not something that the body can make. It has to come from the diet. And then I'm... I just, you know, from there, it was just so, so fascinating. I just, I just got my big textbook about neurochemistry. And it was like, this is all food. Wow. This is all food. We just don't think about it that way. And I started talking to my colleagues and they also never thought about it that way. And I don't know, maybe, you know, I'm a little bit, I really enjoy reading and studying and doing research. I'm a little bit of a nerd if you want. And so I just went for it. And I... I founded a lab at NYU. I started a new lab. I was um, the director of the Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab. If you... Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab. Nutrition and Brain Fitness, yes. Wow, that's amazing. I've never heard that name before. That's fantastic. Yes, yes. Um, it was the last three, four years that I was at NYU. And what we did was really 
we, we would literally look at the chemistry of the brain using brain imaging. So we would measure diet and quantify diet in our patients and also really measure all the nutrients inside their bodies, like in plasma or serum, and then correlate that with whatever we, we could find in their brains using brain imaging. And all our patients have followed over time. So slowly but surely, we can say how your diet is changing the way your brain is changing with you, which is fascinating to me. I think it's, it's wonderful. And um, what's really important, I think, to understand about the brain is that uh, the brain has a very limited capacity to self-regenerate. Like in everywhere in the body, your, your, your cells die and regrow. They, we lose hair all the time, but they, they get replaced immediately. Our, our red blood cells get replaced all the time. Our skin gets replaced all the time. Even our skeleton gets renewed at, at a rate of like 10% a year. Your, your, your bones you know, regrow in some ways. Yeah. Your brain doesn't. There are some spots inside the brain where we can regrow new brain cells, but that's very limited. It's called neurogenesis. And that's very, very limited, yeah. especially as we get older. So our brain cells are born with us and age with us, which really means we need to take extra care. We really need to do everything we can to support them and make sure that they also age gracefully with us because we cannot replace them. And eating the right foods and really providing their brains with the right nutrients is one of the best ways to do that. Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly exciting to hear that. Um, so let's, let's dive right in then. I mean, you've, you've studied food, nutrition, you've had your own lab, nutrition and brain fitness, which I think many of us, I mean, certainly I wish I had a lab like that. That's, that sounds superb. And I, I look forward to, to sort of learning from you what, what you what you discovered there. But if we go straight into food, what are those? I think I think I've I've heard before you say that, that there's five top brain foods. Is that fair to say? Sure, there can be as many as you like. I think five is a good number to start with. Right. Well, let's start. Okay. What's what's the top brain food, or what are some of the top brain foods? Let's put it better. You know, it's a bit more yeah, accurate. So I'm going to start with a food that is not necessarily considered food, but it's super important. And that is water. Water has been underestimated forever and especially as far as brain health is concerned but the brain is probably made of water 80 percent of the brain's content is water and we cannot store water in the body or the brain so we really need to replenish it every single day and we really need to have enough especially we need to make sure the brain is well hydrated because every single chemical reaction that takes place in the brain needs water just to be activated. Every single thing, like even energy production, will never happen unless you have water inside your brain. Wow. And that seems obvious, right? Well, I just need to drink water. What is, what is a little less obvious is that the brain really suffers when we are dehydrated. Even just a 2% water loss, which is a minimal amount of dehydration, can cause neurological symptoms like brain fog, confusion, dizziness, but also it was shown to um, it literally makes your brain shrink. It, you don't want your brain to shrink. It's the one thing you don't want, right? No. Yeah, exactly. So just drinking water can can really help the health of your brain. And also there are studies showing that like if you're going to take a test, just drinking a glass of water prior to taking the test can increase your reaction time by 15% or more. Well, it's, it's incredible that on a personal level, you know, sometimes you get busy and you, you haven't drunk much water and you're, you're running around and you, you feel really tired sometimes and sluggish and, you know, you think you might need a coffee or you might need something to perk you up. And it's amazing how you're drinking a large glass of water, how many times that can sometimes just immediately make your, almost like your brain switch on and you've got more energy and more more cognitive ability, I think many people can probably resonate with that. Do you have any guidance in terms of how much water people should be drinking or does that get a bit more challenging to give that sort of recommendation? No, I, I think the problem is that people don't drink enough water. Yeah. So eight glasses a day should be a rule. 
for everybody. And I, I think it's really important this quality. Here, at least in the in the state, a lot of people drink purified water. Okay. Great. Or seltzer, or club soda. That's not water. It's not right. water. It doesn't contain the minerals and the electrolytes that the brain needs for hydration. It's just fluids. So if that's the kind of water that people drink, it's not optimal. And they should really take a mineral supplement along with that. It just doesn't do the same for your brain. So what kind of water would you drink, for example? Spring. Spring water. Spring water, mineral water. You know, sometimes it can be expensive. So tap water is totally fine. The problem is that uh, in many countries, in many states, you have to filter it because it's not clean. Yeah. And filtration also removes a lot of the nutrients. So depending on where you live, you might want to check the stats on your water and see if it contains yeah. enough minerals and you know, salts and electrolytes. And if not, by all means, drink it, but then take a supplement along with that. Yeah. That's it's it's incredible that that water's not just water. Where you're talking, you know, which which probably adds to a lot of this confusion that people had generally about what what they should do in in 2018 about staying healthy with so much uh, advice flying around the place. Um, but you know, one key thing you're saying is that the brain needs water. Make sure you're drinking enough water. I agree. I think eight glasses uh, seems a pretty reasonable aim for most of us um you know one of one one of my patients actually said the best way he has found to do that because he couldn't remember to have eight glasses and our glasses are a bit smaller here than u.s glasses so if we have eight glasses in the uk it roughly is 1.2 liters of water a day and i think you guys it's about 1.8 liters yeah about two liters a day yeah and and but and one of my patients said okay so he bought a 600 ml uh bottle and he would go to work and basically by lunchtime, he knew he had to finish that 600 ml bottle. At lunchtime, he'd fill it up. And by the time he left work, he'd also have to have, eat, have drunk that bottle. And it was just transformative for that, for that person. Just that was, that's all he thought about is, can I complete that bottle? Can I finish it two times a day? And, you know, he felt so much better in himself. It was just incredible. Um, so that was just a little tip that I learned from one of my patients, actually. Yeah, that's super, that's great. That's, that's a great way. And there's also another super quick test to, to find out if you are dehydrated or not. Great. Yeah, love to hear it. Okay. So, a bottle, like a one liter bottle, um, you need to fill it with warm water. Not hot, not, not cold, just warm. And then take very small sips every two minutes, like four or five sips of water every five minutes and keep going. If after a little while, the warm water starts to really feel good. You, you feel like you want more, you're dehydrated. Right. And you need to drink it all and then keep drinking. It's a very simple test, but I mean, so many people are like, this is actually good. They start like, oh, this is really weird. And after a little while, like after 30 minutes, they'd be like, okay, I need, I need it. This is good for me. Like my body is responding really positively. So it can go on for 30 minutes sometimes, this. Well, you, you sleep every five. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. So every five minutes. Yeah, wow. I've never heard that one. So that's, that's a great tip for, for people listening to, to give that a go and see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wasn't expecting that. Okay, so one, one, of the, one of the important things for us to think about is water. What else in the diet should we be, cons- what should we be considering to, to improve our brain function? Again, I'm a scientist, so I'm going to give you a scientist answer, even though it's not super practical. Uh, caviar. 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 Caviar or fish eggs wow. is the best brain food. And the reason for that is that the chemical composition, the nutritional composition of caviar basically mirrors the nutritional composition inside your brain. If you look at caviar or fish eggs, you know, salmon, roe, or any fish eggs, but, you know, salmon or, or wild fish eggs that actually really make so much better, they contain a very special blend of nutrients that are perfect for the brain. They're very rich in a special kind of omega-3 fatty acid that is called DHA, 
And that is the most prevalent attack inside the brain that needs to be replenished pretty much consistently. It contains all sorts of lean essential proteins, so all different amino acids, um, minerals, and antioxidants. That's the, the super special thing about caviar because usually antioxidant vitamins, like vitamin A, vitamin C, and also selenium, an antioxidant, anti-aging mineral, they're not usually found in animal foods. They're usually found in plant foods. But caviar really has it all. They're all inside together. And also B vitamins, especially choline, the vitamin I mentioned that um, is needed to make memories in the brain. Yeah. Caviar is very rich, of that, in rich in that. And vitamin B6 and vitamin B12, they're needed pretty much for every single thing to happen inside the brain. So it's a perfect package. Now, it's expensive. I get it. Uh, it's not practical. Get it. So it's a great food. But then second best would be fatty fish. Fatty fish. Okay. Fatty fish, yes. Like so fatty fish contains many of the same nutrients as in caviar. Not as packed, uh, but still it is a fantastic green food, especially for all the omega-3s that it contains. That could be you know, nice fish like salmon or herring or bluefish, trout, but also very inexpensive fish like anchovies or sardines. You can buy a, a small can for maybe a dollar, I think, in a store, if not less. And that's an excellent way to... Yeah, yeah, Lisa, it's, 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 it's great that you just presented that contrast there because... Um... You know, many people say these days that it's hard to eat healthily and it's it's very expensive and too expensive. And, you know, that's that's a separate topic, probably not for this this podcast today. But as you say, caviar, caviar is perfect, the perfect food. But at the same time, it's expensive and not yeah. going to be accessible for, for many people. But wild fish, well, fatty fish absolutely is accessible because, as you say, you know, you can get a, um, a, a, a tin of what, anchovies for about a dollar out there in the States? You know, I've been in my local supermarket. There's wild salmon tinned for 50p, 55p. Very, very cheap. And, you know, it's wild salmon in a tin and anchovies in a, in a sort of canned anchovies are, is a staple in my kitchen. It's just there. So, you know, sometimes if I'm hungry or the kids want a snack, you know, we'll just get that out. And it's a cheap, healthy snack for us all to have. Yeah. Absolutely. It's also a staple in um, Mediterranean cuisine. And everybody knows the Mediterranean diet is very protective against a lot of things, like dementia, against cardiovascular disease, against diabetes. And fish is a real big component of, of the diet. And it doesn't have to be expensive. There are many ways to, to get fish um, in your kitchen that is totally convenient. And would you say the main, the sort of fatty fish is the main reason behind the benefits of fatty fish, is it to do with the omega-3 content, would you say? I would say that, yes. Um, you can get omega-3s in many different ways and from many different sources, but the one kind that the brain really needs is called the DHA. It's a very special kind of, of omega-3. So omega-3 uh, is a polyunsaturated fatty acid, and they can be short-chain, medium-chain, and long-chain. The brain really needs the long-chain polyunsaturated fat, like DHA. And DHA is really pretty much only found in uh, fish. Fish, shellfish, um, yeah, fish and shellfish. So omega-3s can obviously be found in some uh, non-animal foods, uh, like okay. you know, flax seeds and various nuts, but you know, not all of it gets converted in the same way that, that, that it can be with animal foods. Um, but just to really drill down on the brain, you're saying that the human brain needs DHA, this type of omega-3. Is, is that something that, let's say, a vegan or a vegetarian might need to be careful about if they're choosing to eat that way? I think so. I think it's good. And I tried being vegan so many times that I really, I really looked into that for, for personal reasons as well. So what happens with, there are animal sources of omega-3s and plant sources of omega-3s. Like you said, flax seeds are a very good source. 
extra virgin olive oil is a good source. For fat and steroid, this is a different kind of omega-3, it's called ALA, and it needs to be converted into DHA in the brain, which is perfectly fine. The brain can do it. It's just that up to 75% is lost in the conversion. So you need to start with a lot more in order to reach the same amount in the end. So you just need to be mindful of that. Yeah, so you can do it. You just need to be very, very on your game and, and looking very carefully at this. Okay, that, that's super interesting. Okay, so we've got um, got water, we've got uh, caviar and, and fatty fish. What are some of these other top brain foods that we can be thinking about? Um, berries. Berries are great. Berries? Berries, yes. So berries are basically, this is not a beautiful way to put it, but it's like... Um, they're that part of the plant that is actually engineered to produce a new plant. So it really contains, the berries really contain all the effort of the plant to make sure that that, that particular plant will, will ensure the survival of the species. So the berries are that part of the plant that are really, really taken care of. You know, they're optimized. They, they took millions of years to become what they are. And they're really optimized to make sure that the next plant has all the nutrients it needs to develop. Wow. And so the berries are that part of the plant that is the most rich in all the essential nutrients that the plant needs to grow and be strong and healthy and fight disease and fight predators, you know, and also be inviting to birds uh, so that they can be disseminated everywhere. And so the berries are really rich in a lot of nutrients, including antioxidants and anti-aging nutrients that also give the berries that very beautiful color, right? Like cherries are very rich in anthocyanins, and anthocyanins are pigments. They have a very strong antioxidant capacity and also make them very appealing. And at the same time, they contain a good amount of sugar, glucose, natural glucose, that is very important for the brain. The brain relies on glucose for energy pretty much all the time. And they're also, um, they're quite rich in fiber. So that's a really good combination of glucose and fiber because um, it doesn't impact your insulin level as much. It doesn't impact your blood sugar levels. They actually help stabilize it. So they're sweet, but they're also good for you at the same time. Then another food would be dark leafy green. Dark leafy green vegetables, okay. Veggies, which seems obvious perhaps but it's really important to recognize that these greens especially wild greens or greens with very very deep beautiful green colors are so rich in phytonutrients or nutrients from plants that have a really strong disease fighting property many are antibacterial for instance many are just protective they protect the plants and as you eat the plant they protect you as well fantastic okay Really good. And then the last one for me would be extra virgin olive oil. I think, I mean, there are many more healthy foods, but extra virgin olive oil is a little bit magical, if you will. And again, I'm Italian, so, but, but from a scientific perspective, it's really, it's a very magical food. It's a, it's a beautiful blend of omega-3s that are so good for you, vitamin E, which is a really strong anti-aging compound. And also monounsaturated fatty acids. And if you put them all together, it's good for your heart and it's good for the brain at the same time. So it really protects you, you know, 360 degrees protection. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that, that's, that's super exciting to hear that from a, from a scientist perspective. We've got water, we've got caviar, we've got um, uh, fatty fish, we've got berries, dark leaf greeny vegetables and extra virgin olive oil. And, you know, what's interesting for me as I go through your list is that, you know, you say dark leafy green veg is obvious, but, you know, I'm not sure these things are as obvious as, as we've thought them to be. And even if they are obvious, a lot of the time we're not doing these things. And as a population, we're not eating enough of these foods. So I think it's it's really good that you can highlight specifically that these foods are good for our brain and these are the reasons why. And therefore, it would be a good idea to focus on those. So I'm hoping that this conversation helps 
focus people at the end on actually these things are going to be really good for my brain. So if you're not eating them for any other reason, you know, who doesn't want a better brain, basically? Yes. And those say, you know, sometimes sometimes we tend to eat the same things over and over again. Like if I say berries, everybody will be like, oh, I'm going to have a blueberry smoothie. And then my question is, why blueberries? Why do they become the number one berry on the planet just because they're available? or because they're really the best ones. And so I looked into that, and blackberries are actually better. Wow. Blackberries, or here they say black raspberries, but they're actually blackberries. Um, yes, they have a stronger um, antioxidant capacity as compared to blueberries. So why not try that too? Well, that reminds me of something that the very first podcast, episode one I did, was with someone called Professor Tim Spector who is probably one of the UK's uh, leading researchers in the gut microbiome. Uh-huh. And one of his tips for people is something I very much share is uh, the importance of diversity in the yeah. diet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some, one of his top tips is, you know, try and eat different foods each week. And you're talking about berries, you're talking about how good they are, but why, why only stick to blueberries? Why not try, you know, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, you know, the, and if you see a new berry that you never tried before, give it a go. Try it. Yeah. Yes. And I remember we were talking about gooseberries. Oh, yeah. Because actually, amla, Indian gooseberry. Oh, is, yes. Yeah. It's their, it's their one fruit with actually the highest antioxidant capacity on earth. As far as research, you know, as far as we know for now. And I was never able to find it. And then I, more and more people are saying, we have gooseberries. They're in the bush outside in the garden. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I never tried them, but they're really, I'm, I'm trying to get them shipped here. Like yeah. I found small berries, but they're not, they're not the Indian gooseberries. You were telling me that your mom was giving it to you. With yeah, I remember, I remember as, a, as a kid that we'd have these now and again. I really like the flavor. I don't think I'd ever thought about it since we had this Facebook Live conversation a few weeks ago. And yeah. you mentioned it. And I just had this memory, this really vivid memory of when I was a child having it. So, yeah, I didn't, you know, maybe, you know, maybe my mum was trying to get me into medical school or something like that by, by giving me those berries. So, okay. so, so we've, knows best. Yeah, Mama knows best exactly. Um, so you've you've told us some of these top foods that are good for the brain. What about if we contrast that with what are some of the foods that are bad for the brain or, or you know cause issues with our brain? And and you've you've had a very interesting way that you can actually look at the structure of certain brains in your lab to see how food affects the structure, which is which is really interesting. Yes. Yes. Um... We look at brain structure, function, and chemistry, and how specific diets and specific foods and nutrients influence the health of our brains from a very um, comprehensive perspective. You know, we can look at all these different parameters. And in our research and in many of my colleagues' research, uh, a Western diet is really bad news for your brain. So the more processed foods, deep-fried foods, fast food you eat, but also if you eat a lot of fatty foods, this kind of diet combined with an overall lack of fresh fruits and veggies and whole grains and fresh water and healthy oils, it's really, it's really bad for your brain. And we can see it on brain scans. Like I show you the scans of two people uh, contrasting a healthy diet like a Mediterranean style diet in America, or whatever the means, yeah. more like um, uh, it's a relatively high carb diet, but mostly based on veggies and fruits and whole grains and fish and nuts and seeds and uh, healthy oils. And the absence of highly processed foods, I'm guessing, yeah, probably just as important, I guess. Absolutely, yes, of course. And the absence of processed foods and fast foods, especially. If you compare brains of people in these two different diet patterns, you can see that those on the Western diet show increased accelerated brain shrinkage as compared to the brains of people on healthier diets. And this is for people who are middle age, like in the 40s, 50s, very early 60s. But like in midlife, you can see this really big 
changes that are happening in the brain and how the brains are literally shrinking. Like the, the hippocampus, which is the, the memory center of the brain, is getting smaller and smaller and thinner and thinner. You don't want that, especially when you're 50 years old. That is, that is a very, that's a red flag for future dementia when you're in your 70s. Or what's, what's the earliest brain scan that you've done on someone where you've seen this? Do you, do you, can you recall at the top of your yeah. head? Yeah, 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 35. 35. So you've seen a 35-year-old's brain showing signs of atrophy and shrinkage. So actually, at that age, I think the most obvious sign is a reduction in brain activity. You can see that the brain hasn't shrunk yet, but metabolic activity is depressed. So you want your metabolic rate to be really high when you're 35, right? And if they're not as high, that's that's really concerning. Yeah, absolutely. But it makes me think, you know, I wouldn't mind getting my own brain scanned and seeing what's going on. It makes you think, you know, hey, what is actually going on at an early age? You know, are are there signs that you need to change something? Um, but I guess that's a wider point in terms of medicine and you know, this sounds very interesting for the research setting, but I wonder if we'll ever get to the point uh, in the near future where for real prevention, we can actually be picking up this sort of, you know, decreased brain activity, you know, years beforehand and actually then target that person with some recommendations. I know it's probably not here for quite some time, but it's, it's just interesting to think no, where we could go. Oh, have you done it? Yeah, so I am um, the associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic the Wild Cognitive Medical Center, and that's exactly what we do. So our patients... Oh, wow, so that's happening. Go on, tell me. So what, what, who, <laughs> what sort of patients come in? Our patients are... Um, we work with people of all ages. I think the youngest is 20-something, and we go all the way to 90 years old. And these are people who have a family history of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, or other genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's, like an equally for genotype, which is something that increases your risk of Alzheimer's without necessarily causing Alzheimer's for you. They are usually cognitively intact. They have no cognitive symptoms, but they're interested in preventing Alzheimer's with every possible tool at our disposal. Some patients instead are showing cognitive impairment of some form, sometimes it's subjective. It's more like an awareness that you're not performing as well as you used to. Some people actually have some some degree of cognitive impairment that really shows up on cognitive evaluation. Some people have dementia. You know, but for prevention, we really try to work with people without any cognitive impairment and many of them receive brain scans. And they of course get all sorts of evaluations from labs, neuropsychological evaluations. We do very thorough genetic testing for a lot of markers that show an early predictive capacity. Um, we look for the lifestyle in, in deep detail, very deep detail, uh, exercise, you know, physical activity of any sort, intellectual stimulation, uh, stress reduction, of course, diet in detail, uh, vascular risk management is also really important. When you say vascular risk management, is that, are you talking about things like blood pressure? Are you thinking about uh, sort of certain blood markers, so um, oxidized cholesterol, these sort of things? Is that what we're talking yes, about? Yes, hypertension, um, all markers for metabolic disease, so BMI. But we, we also use uh, machines that can really quantify like percent body fat, percent muscle mass, percentage water inside your body. And are you, are you tracking the brain scans in these people at all, or is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're seeing someone. You're you're getting a baseline of where their brain is. You're doing all these tests. You're then making the recommendations on the nutrition, on the lifestyle, um, and then what? You you recheck them in a year or two to see what the brain looks like. Every six months, we don't repeat the brain scans every six months because that would be too soon to see anything. Um, but every year. So they come back for clinical evaluations and follow-ups every six months. Actually, I would love to do the brain scans every six months, but it's so expensive. Yeah. It's really so expensive. So we're we're doing a year because it's a good time frame to really 
you know, the, the cost to benefit ratio is actually a good one, but I would write in. What, what I find incredible about that is just, I don't know if you're, you know, have there been any stories where you've, you've seen a brain that maybe wasn't performing as well as you would like it to at that person's age, you've made some recommendations and then you have seen an improvement at all on a brain scan? Or is that, has that happened? I'm going to let you know in a couple of months because we're, we're now analyzing the data from the clinic. It's quite a new clinic. Yes, it's a new clinic. I joined a year ago. Wow. So just, yeah, 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 yeah. So that sounds like a, another podcast conversation in a few months <laughs> to find out what's happened. That's what it sounds like to me. It would be wonderful. Um, what I can tell you is what happens when you don't make recommendations. Because when I was at NYU, um, we followed patients for 15 years. And we had the diet information over time, the physical information over time, meaning physical activity, intellectual activity. And we really followed them for a long time. And if you... If you follow the diet, they define processed foods, fast foods, uh, deep fried foods, and a lot of meat in daily, you know, very high fat diet, your brain declines, your brain deteriorates over time. And it, it's, a, it's a fairly large effect that we're, we're seeing. It doesn't mean that everybody will. You know, there's always the, the amazing person who, you know, smokes, doesn't move, and it's as you know candy bar for breakfast and is doing fantastic and then you have yeah. the person who is super careful and still is not doing sure. as well as they would of course but on average on average your brain sucks and i think this is a really important message for people for everybody to really know because i, I think there's so much confusion about brain and diet well why why is there that much confusion do you think I I find um I find in part because food is not regulated. I think the government is also really confused, and there's there's not a lot of research done that shows causality, right? So there are there are some studies to say one thing, and some studies to say another thing, and and everybody has an opinion. Especially nowadays, what happens is that scientists do the work and then talk about this work with other scientists and not with the public. And we publish our work in scientific journals that nobody has access to. And so we have an understanding and an agreement over what a healthy diet is. And nobody ever hears about it. Yeah. Right? And on the other hand, there's the internet that is not subject to peer review. Yeah. Right? There are no scientists checking with you what, what anybody says on social media and the information travels at a speed it is much faster than anybody's ability to check it right and you can just say whatever you like you know anybody with a Twitter account is an expert in nutrition yeah which is amazing too especially in nutrition like nobody really talks about you know kidney failure right? nobody cares but everyone loves food. And yeah, it's because everyone eats, right? Everyone loves food. Everyone eats. Well, people interested start to see the impacts that food has on the way that they feel and then they share that. I, I think, yeah, you're right. This, it's a tricky one because on one hand, what social media and the internet has done is that it's, it's, you know, it's made information so easily accessible to the world. Um, but the flip side of that is there's no regulation on that. Um and so anyone can say anything. And I, you know, I'm in I have a real clash with that because I think on one hand that the whole point of the internet that it is free and it is available to everyone. So I think that's one of its strengths. And if if that starts to get regulated, then I think yeah, it I it's it's a challenging one because you're right, you know, a lot of these journals are behind paywalls. And so people that some great research is being produced, but people aren't able to read it. Absolutely, I completely, I completely agree. And I, I, I love the internet. I'm so happy that people are free to say whatever they want. It's wonderful. The problem, I think, is when we start treating science like fashion. Yeah. Right. So a couple of years ago, everybody was vegan, and now everybody's eating fat. That is human. We have a tendency to humanize science and biology, and we have a tendency to take sides. 
right? Today, we're not touching grain. And tomorrow, we will not touch meat. But biology doesn't work that way. I, you know, any scientist, I think, will tell you that biology is about harmony. Everything in a, in a living organism really strives to achieve balance and equilibrium, homeostasis. Everything tends to stay calm in many ways. And it's a very human tendency that we have to try and just stress the system in every way we can. We're, we're, we're disrupting whatever balance it is in the body. And I think it would be very important to, to instead try to support it. Which, you know, means really, first of all, understanding how we work in terms of physiology. You know, what, what does the body need to really be happy in the, at the cellular level rather than at the emotional level? For the brain, the brain is even more difficult to understand because, you know, when you eat certain foods, you can tell immediately I'm gaining weight and losing weight. Um, you know, I can run five miles. I can't do the. I can't take the stairs. You can tell it's it's obvious, but you don't have that kind of feedback immediately from your brain. It takes it, it takes other tools to show what's happening inside your brain. And, and I think that's that. You know, as you say, that's probably where some of the confusion also comes from. Is that people? I think don't think about the foods that they eat in their brain, you know, people think about food and, and as you say, their weight or how much energy they've got. But the brain seems to be this separate organ that's kind of locked away in our skull that, you know, does its own thing. But but what your science is showing is that that's just not the case at all. And literally the food, arguably the food, the same food that's good for your weight is the same food that's good for your heart. It's the same food that's good for your brain. You know, how many times have we heard about the benefits of omega-3 fats and fatty fish? and olive oil, and dark leafy green veg, and berries. I mean, that is not, you know, we, I think we've heard that before, haven't we, that these things are good foods for our health. What you're able to do is show us how they are also, not only for our overall health, they're very good specifically for our brain health. I think that's what's really exciting for me. Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, we have a, as a society, I think we, we're comfortable with the idea that they will feed their bodies, but we're less aware that they were feeding their brains as well in the process. And so the same way that we tend to diet for the present, like I'm going out on a date, I want to look good, I'm going to a wedding, uh, summer is coming, I have to slim down. This is, this is all very good and reasonable, but it's for the short term. I think we need to start thinking about the future and the long term. And in a way, you know, the same way we save for retirement, we should start to eat for retirement. Yeah. Because the food choices today will make an enormous impact, not necessarily tomorrow, but when we are 30 years from now. Yeah, I, I love that. And the brain suffered for 30 years, and then you can't bring it back. You know, you, you have to really protect it now. Yeah, that's it's, it's a really great way to think about things. And I think listeners to this podcast know that I'm always talking about these four cornerstones of health and you're saying eat for retirement. I would I would add move for retirement, sleep for retirement and de-stress and relax for retirement as well, uh, because it's not only going to impact the way you feel today, tomorrow, next week. It's going to really have a huge impact on how well you live and, you know, as, as you age. Um, Lisa, finally, I just wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father of two young children. And so the more I learn about this kind of stuff um, in my own practice, but talking to experts like yourself, the more I want to change what I do at home with my children so that, you know, why wait till they're 40 or 50 or 60 before they start <laughs> thinking about brain health, you know, food and brain health. Um, you know, I know you're a mother has you know, has the research that you've come, that you've been involved with, has that influenced, do you think, how you feed your child or, or anything you do with your child? A lot, a lot, yes, yes. Um, I think what, what's obvious is that when, when kids are very little, there's a critical window of, of opportunity to really help their brains grow and develop in a, in a very optimal way. And that is usually between birth and when they turn three. Three to four, like when they're infants to, to toddler. 
that's really where you have to put an effort into feeding their brains the right foods and nutrients because when they're so young, their brains are literally like little sponges. Whatever you put in the system gets inside the brain, almost all of it, except some nutrients, but, but a lot of nutrients really get into the brain and become incorporated into the very fabric of the brain. When we're older, the brain kind of shuts down the gate. You know, there's a, there's a protection around the brain. It's called the blood-brain barrier that literally shields the brain from pretty much anything you can put inside your body. There are, there are gates inside the brain that open and close when the brain needs to eat. And so, like, let's say you're low energy, your brain needs glucose, the gates will open and the glucose will, will flow right in. And then when the brain has enough, shuts the gates down and that's it. But when you're little, these mechanisms are not as strictly regulated. And for instance, there's a lot more fat that goes from the diet inside the brain. When we're older, um, only the omega-3s and omega-6 that we were talking about, the polyunsaturated fats, can get inside the brain. All the other fat is pretty much left outside, just can get in. But when kids are little, and all the way through adolescence, the brain is still needing fat in the diet just to grow more neurons and more neuronal connections. So the quality of the food is incredibly important. Like, so let's just say I'm a mom and my daughter is two and a half. And I, we do not have sugar in the house. We just do not have it. The only sources of sugar is like honey, maple syrup, um, molasses, coconut nectar, you know, natural sources. Um, we do not allow processed foods in the house. We do not do fast foods. We don't really do takeout, which means I have to cook <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot. But it pays off. It really pays off. Like she can write her name, two and a half. Wow. She can actually write her name. Yeah, that's I, I mean, I don't know if it's about you know. I I won't take credit for it, but I think I think what what we're doing is not having bad consequences, let's say. At least some, it looks like it's going okay. And my daughter eats fish all the time. She loves it. She actually really likes caviar or salmon roe. Because oh, it's, fantastic. You know, it's dried and she likes the coffee. But she actually really likes it. She eats goji berries for a snack. Um, I only have super high quality fat in the house. So like sweet cream butter, organic. Um, unrefined vegetable oils. I don't have any refined oils in the house. She'll have extra virgin coconut oil. It's good for the brain when they're little. She eats eggs. She eats whole grains. She eats tons of veggies and fruit. She's yeah. the fruit monster. We say she's the fruit monster. She's constantly eating fruit. That's good. It's so, Lisa, it's so great for me to hear that because it makes me feel like less of a, a special case with my family and my kids because I'm... I'm very much like that with the kids. You eat better. Yeah, they, they yeah. you know, um, I've got to be honest, I'm very lucky. They eat very, very healthily. My, my son is seven, my daughter's five. Um, but I think that the learning point for that, I think, is that, you know, I, I, I had some, you know, quite dramatic reasons to, to change children's diets. Um, when my son was very young, he got very unwell. But, you know, I found that if your kids are used to eating whole real foods right that's what they want that's what they crave but if they're used to eating lots of high sugary foods and refined foods and packets of sweets then actually their taste buds uh so you know their, their, their taste buds adapt and therefore that they want those flavors again so if if you if you think a sweet taste is a packet of haribo sweets right and that's what you're having five six days a week actually you know, a ripe peach in the summer is no longer going to have the same appeal that it that it might have done. And I know it's hard if your children are already used to um, eating lots of junk. I think it can be incredibly challenging for parents to shift them over. But I certainly feel very lucky that I've come into all this knowledge as my kids were very young, particularly for my daughter, who sort of grew up in, in, a, in a very nutrition conscious household. And I, I've got to say, I'm very proud of how they eat but that's also because we prioritize that at home i don't keep junk in the house and i think that's a good rule for adults as well is that there's a lot of temptation in the world anyway 
And so I say keep your house a safe zone. Make that a safe zone because then if if you want to treat now and again when you're out, okay, fine. But I, I think it's really hard when you've got that that sort of unhealthy stuff at home because when you're feeling tired and stressed and it's very easy to open the cupboard and go for it. So I, I like your approach, which is keep it out of the house. Yeah, that's yeah, easier. And also, what I would suggest is to actually cook with the kids. Like yeah. I cook really. We, we spend a lot of time making things t- together. So she really enjoys the process. Like once she said to me, she's in a pink phase. Everything has to be pink. And so, of course, and so she wants strawberry ice cream because it's pink. And I said, okay, let's go to the market. We'll get fresh strawberries. And then I got coconut cream and I got honey. And we made something that I said was ice cream. And you taste it like it. And it was pink. And so she was so happy that she had strawberry ice cream. And I was so happy that she was eating something healthy. And that she was happy about it. And she's starting to connect the dots, right? She's now, oh, I want that. I've been with my mother to the market. We bought the fresh foods that we need and then we've made it and that's you know I think that's going to be invaluable as they grow up and I you know I, I yeah. do the same with my kids and they're they're involved even my four-year-old daughter she's chopping stuff in the kitchen and it's I know sometimes I post photos on my Instagram about it and people go be careful with a knife and I understand that but you know what kids are pretty smart if you teach them how to do it and they've done it a few times they're pretty you know I've I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like them. I don't want to overly protect them so they don't. They can't use a knife until they're twelve years old. I kind of feel, <laughs> let's, you know, there is a balance. But I, yeah, I think that's, you know, a, a tip for for people listening about how to get your children to eat better is try and involve them in the kitchen if you can. I think that's a that's a great tip. Look, Lisa, I've, you know, whenever we chat, I, I have a million other ideas, and I think we could chat for another two or three hours. But I'm very conscious of your time. What, what, I, what I try and leave uh, the listeners with at the end of each podcast is some take-home either tips or things that they can think about. So if we're thinking about our brain health, have you got some top-line tips that you can give people? I mean, it may be things we've already covered that they can just now, as we come to the end of our conversation, have on their mind as they go about their everyday tasks and think about improving their brain health? Yes. Um... Take care of yourself and take care of your brain. Just just think of your brain as something that eats, sleeps, drinks, and moves with you because everything you do has effects inside your brain. So really try to focus on everything you know that is good for you and good for your brain and make sense and just treat yourself to quality. I think what's lacking a little bit nowadays is the quality. Like for instance, foods are just no longer foods. There's some kind of chemical manipulations of real foods. They're just convenient and cheap and easy to find, but they're not healthy. So I think what we're learning is that our destiny is not in our genes or our DNA, that aging is not, or losing your mind and losing your memory is not a consequence of getting older. There's something, we are accountable for what we do. And we have more power than we realize. And so we should really take our destiny into our own hands and get educated and get smart about things and talk to our doctors and, and find a way to really be the best version of, of ourselves that we can be, especially especially our brain. Yeah, Lisa, thanks. That's, that's really, really insightful to leave people um, thinking about things that they can do to, to, to help their brain. Lisa, you have written a fantastic book called Brain Foods. Um, I'm going to put a link to that book. I'm going to put a link to all the things that we've spoken about. And also, if we can get that brain scan, I'll put a link to that as well. So people can actually see that in the show notes of the podcast. Um, I hope we get the opportunity to talk again very soon. I'm tempted to jump on a plane and go on the waiting list at your uh your your alzheimer's prevention clinic and get my own brain scan so you might see me at the front door very soon um but yeah thank you very much for your time i hope people enjoyed that and i'll see you again very soon thank you so much thank you for having me it was a pleasure take care okay thank you
That concludes the latest conversation on my Feel Better, Live More podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, and if you got something useful out of it, please do consider sharing this episode with your friends and your family and your social networks. In fact, why not take a screenshot on your phone right now and post it on your Instagram stories, on Facebook, on Twitter. Don't forget my book, The Four Pillar Plan, has just been released in the United States and Canada with a brand new title, How to Make Disease Disappear, and you can find a link for the book in the show notes. Guys, please do leave me a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on as it is the best way to help raise the prominence of the podcast and get the information out to more people. And if this is your first time, please do hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified when the latest episode of my podcast comes out. Guys, I'm always looking for new suggestions and new ideas for who you would like to see me interview on this show. So please do let me know on social media using the hashtag #FeelBetterLiveMore. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Dr. Chatterjee and on Twitter using the handle at Dr. Chatterjee UK. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me next time.